Welcome once again to Cinemaholics, the major motion podcast, where we talk about the biggest and the best films coming to theaters and streaming online all through awards season. From the San Francisco Bay Area, I am John Agroni, film editor for InBetweenDrafts.com. And from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, he is a news and entertainment writer at Collider.com. It's Will Ashton. What up? I'm still not used to the In Between Drafts opening. It's going to take some time. You know, we're still in between, you know, feeling comfortable with it. Sure. I mean, like, how much do you know about the city of Pittsburgh? I know a lot, actually. I feel like you've never talked about it, but I do think that talking to you on a regular basis, I have absorbed facts about the city that I would not have otherwise known. Like, for one thing, I'm well aware of the fact that it is in a landlocked state. Sure. But uh, you do know about Heinz Field? Um, yeah, I'm definitely. I definitely know what that is, and I'm not going to pretend. Okay. Um, and it's, say yes, even though I don't. Well, it's Heinz Field. That's where the the famous Steelers play. You know, mm. it's where we fil- I filmed a scene. Black and in, yellow. Uh, the Dark Knight Rises. Mm-hmm. Uh, that mm-hmm. is the only time I was there because I don't go to football games. Uh, but they changed the name recently to Akashur Stadium, which doesn't Acupuncture roll- Stadium. No, Akashur Stadium. Oh, Akashur. Akashur. Like sure. Like sure. Mike sure. Yeah. Creator of the good place. I guess so. It's S-U-E-R, like Akashur. So yeah, now I hear people are like, oh yeah, we're going to go to Akashur. And I'm just like, it, it doesn't, it just doesn't have that stickiness that uh, Heinz Field has. It just doesn't, yeah. it doesn't got the spark. I'm not saying that's the case with in between drafts. I just, my brain expects the, the notes to hit the certain thing when you say I'm an editor for the young folks, but then you go, you, you drift like jazz. You're like, I'm the editor for in between drafts. And it's just different. I, hmm. it, it's taken me a while to get used to that. We have to save the jazz conversation for when we are reviewing Babylon. Well, <laughs> yeah, that's true. Right? Yes. Yes. But no, you know what? In San Francisco, we have the same kind of thing going on, right? With uh, AT&T Park, it's now Oracle Park, which is even weirder because we had the Oracle in Oakland and it, and then the Raiders went to Las Vegas. I mean, nothing no, nothing stays the same in this world. Everything dies, I think is oh, what I'm yeah. trying to say. Because, uh, yeah, it took me a minute uh, to remember that about the Raiders because when I went to my Airbnb, mm-hmm. when I landed in California, I, the, the light uh, had uh, a Raiders logo and it took me a minute. I was like, oh, yeah, I remember the Raiders. But there are still Raiders fans out here. They're loyal sure. because we were in uh, Oakland last week and we went to like a like a dive bar uh, during the Oakland and Rams game and people were still they came out for the Oakland Raiders they were like you know what you can go to Las Vegas but you can bet you can gamble on us staying fans so I, that was kind of you know what that perked my spirits up a little bit nice little Christmas miracle how many listeners are over the moon that we're finally talking football on this podcast <laughs> less than zero I imagine this week, we're talking about Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, which just arrived on Netflix. This is a movie we both saw a while back, um, but you know, it's award season. We've been busy, we, and there have been a lot of releases that have been kind of crowding the space, and I guess you and I decided, since we saw this movie at different intervals, that we're just going to wait until it hits the, the Netflix of it all, and then people can listen to the show then, right? Because it, it wasn't in theaters long. Uh, I believe it's still in one theater near me as of this week. I haven't checked. It might be in some theaters around here, but I haven't noticed. I, I think like right now, there's so many other movies competing for space at the art house places, right? And you know what? I was actually going to bring this up before we dive into Pinocchio. There's been some uh, conversation about award season movies not making money. And uh, there was a piece out on one of those big websites, I forget which one, where they were making the argument that one of the reasons... You don't see a lot of award season movies. Your things like The Fablemans and She Said and stuff like that. One of the reasons those movies don't seem to be getting a lot of 
financial return. People aren't showing up for them is because the people who would go to see those movies, you know, folks who are a little bit older, past their 50s, you know, more sophisticated audience, they don't have a place to watch these movies because the places that used to show these movies were art house theaters, right? Like, you know, I have art house theaters in our area, but a lot of people don't. And they, they, what, what do they have? AMC, they have Regal, Century, they have the big chains. But a lot of them don't want to go to the big chains because they're crowded, the floors are sticky, and it's just the experience is not as good for watching Bardo, right? Or White Noise or, or any of these films that are just a little bit more sort of, uh, for lack of a better term, the independent cinema, right? What do you think? Do you, is that argument compelling to you? Yeah, I mean, since we are talking about Netflix films in the case of Pinocchio and Bardo, it's just that I'm not quite sure what their rollout is for these films. Like, obviously, they're putting them in theaters so that they can have uh, awards cachet or cachet, I mean, um, and, you know, be considered like real movies with the, you know, other films that are likely to be nominated for uh, Oscars and other awards. But I don't know. I just like like I wasn't really sure if Pinocchio would play in theaters near me and I was absolutely planned to see it in theaters if I could. I was even thinking about going out of town to see it in theaters if I could. And uh, I was fortunate enough that it actually ended up playing in like three or four different theaters near me, which is kind of similar to what happened with Glass Onion and with uh, um, Don't Look Up. But I mean, more often than not, these Netflix movies don't, even though if they, even if they, when they get a theatrical release uh, in some limited capacity, they don't usually end up playing near me. And so it's just like, I don't know. I mean, I'm not quite sure what the expected return was for this film. I'm, I'm assuming it got uh, a wider release uh, than usual Netflix movies because it was around November where there was not as much coming out. Like now it's getting a little bit more crowded. More movies are starting to enter the multiplexes and all that. And I think some theaters thought that, you know, this heavily acclaimed stop motion animated film from one of our most revered filmmakers would you know have some benefit for you know families looking to see something during the holiday season but i don't know i don't really know what the uh, expected audience was for this film yeah i don't either uh but and I, I know i've debated that uh to some extent with people i know in my area it's like a mishmash of smaller releases so our local i've told you about the vine cinema uh which is pretty close to me and they have, like right now, they're playing like the Fablelands. They're playing Banshees of Inisherin. They, they have Triangle of Sadness coming pretty soon. But they also will play like Blockbusters to sort of offset that. And I think you've talked about how your local art house, the one you work at, is kind of similar. But yeah, they're going to be playing Avatar The Way of Water. And I'm like, hmm. I mean, okay. It, 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 it's just interesting to me. It's interesting how we seem to still have this like issue where streaming is you know, dominating how people want to watch these kinds of movies. But there are still people who do want to, you know, go to the art house. I wonder if more art house theaters are going to open up because the demand might perk up a little bit now that people are feeling a little bit safer. I don't know. It's hard to say. I mean, I was thinking about this because I don't know, I still keep tabs on my college art house theater. And I noticed throughout the pandemic that they've been kind of broadening their uh, list of films to include more like Marvel things or more blockbusters that, you know, they wouldn't even think about playing when I was at school there and going there pretty regularly. And I think a lot of that has to do with just staying afloat and doing things that they know will bring an audience when they were not as financially secure as they would have been, uh, you know, during uh, pre-COVID years. But I don't know. It's just one of those things where 
if it's if that's the case, if that's why an art house theater is going to play Avatar, and if they can make some money off of that, then that makes sense, and you know, get that money so you can play movies mm-hmm. like Pinocchio there. But I also wonder, like, if I'm a moviegoer, and maybe some people just don't care, maybe they just want to see Avatar two, and they're just going to see it wherever is closest and most convenient for them. But I'm not like I don't know, not to be you know. Uh, exclusive to the the chain theaters and all that, but if I'm going to see Avatar, I want to see it on the biggest screen possible with the best sound system and all that stuff. And I'm not saying that these art house theaters don't have that, but it just seems they, unlikely they that they're not going <laughs> to. Right. Yeah. Because they don't have the setup. I mean, they don't have like the big 3D machines most of the time. At least mine don't. I mean, they have real projectors. They have digital pro- uh, projectors too, but they tend to also have like film reels and things like that. It's part of the appeal. It's, you know, people who want to enjoy a record on vinyl, that kind of aesthetic. I just looked it up and Pinocchio is at this point only playing at two theaters within 50 miles of me, which is, you know, obviously a big change. It's only been a couple of weeks and I imagine it was at more places, but yeah, the things have taken its place and the Netflix of it all plays a a component in that. Netflix kind of yanks these movies away as they do. But yeah, I'd have to go about like 25, 30 miles to go see Pinocchio in a theater if I wanted. So that's a bummer. Now I did see Pinocchio in uh, on a screener. You saw it uh, in a theater, and I'm I'm yes. I'm very jealous. I think that that would have been uh, I, I would have enjoyed this movie on the big screen even more. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, I, I, it, it is cool you get these screeners, but I do kind of feel bad. It's kind of like that uh, SpongeBob meme where Squidward's inside and you see SpongeBob and Patrick like playing, you know, out <laughs> having fun. And I feel like that's kind of my experience where like you're kind of hold inside watching like a DVD of Babylon. <laughs> I'm seeing it at the Dolby. And you're like, yeah, I got to see it first. It's like, yeah, but I got to see it on the big screen. So it's kind of like, I don't know. I mean, you know, teach your own. I'm glad you get to see the films, but. You know, I don't know. I, I definitely wanted to make a point, like I said, to see Pinocchio in theaters if I could, because I have a very, very soft spot for stop motion animation. I think it's one of the most gorgeous mediums of film out there. And I'm a really big fan of Guillermo del Toro. I mean, I, I have loved his stuff. I was a really big fan of Shape of Water. I even liked Nightmare Alley. I think I was a little bit more favorable on that one uh, than you during our review of it. Uh, yeah. And I was just really excited for this film. And I, I'm really grateful that I got to see it on the big screen. And I will say... Uh, you know, if you can, if, if listeners have that opportunity available to them, they should absolutely seek it out and see it that way. But if you have to watch it on Netflix, you know, see it however you can. Time is slipping, though. Time is slipping on your your opportunity to see it in theaters, I think. That said, yeah, I mean, it, part of it, too, is that I have awards voting. I have to make decisions. I have to sort of look at the economy of this and, and decide, OK, I considering the runtime, a lot of these movies, I kind of have to watch screeners a lot of the time. Um, as opposed to being able to see it on a big screen. And that's what it really comes down to. And also, you know, trying to save money and be responsible where I can. That said, I, I do think yeah. this is one of the movies I did consider being like, you know what? I got to see it in a theater, even if uh, you know I got to pay a few bu- extra bucks for it. That's fine. But uh, right. yeah, it just didn't work out for this one. Yeah, I mean, and look, like I get like some of these like, man called auto or uh you know she said or something i'm sure like their impact is not going to be uh dissimilar if you watch them at home versus in the movie theater and that's not to say that people shouldn't see those movies in theaters just rather that you know i I think you're going to kind of get a similar experience either way but uh yeah i don't know if if with pinocchio though there's just so much artistry in here and there's so much details that really just vibrate come to life when you see them on you know like a 40 foot screen that's just uh you know it's just a an undeniably beautiful experience to see this on the big screen well all that said i know for me i like watching things in 
the screener format as well. When I, I just want to be able to watch as much as I can because I feel like I don't have a lot of time by the end of the year to squeeze these things in. So I got to make decisions. Now, Avatar The Way of Water, I'm not allowed to review it yet, but I did get a chance to see that in 4DX. And I, I think our conversation about that movie is going to be something else because I I assume you're watching that in theaters, right? Oh, uh, when are you, when yeah, are you seeing, I'm seeing Avatar? that. I'm seeing it tomorrow. So oh boy. by the time people are listening to this episode, I could very well be in the theater being uh, reunited with Pandora. Yeah, you could be dressed, you know, uh, head to toe in blue paint. and uh, Like uh, Ben Stiller at the Oscars that one year? I was going to say more like David Cross in Arrested Development. but <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah. But yeah, no. Um, blue myself, yeah. Let's talk about Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio in earnest here. Now, we, we've already said a lot about it. Uh, you know, Guillermo del Toro co-directed it with Mark Gustafson, yeah. and this is uh, a screenplay that del Toro did with Patrick McHale. Th- this is actually based on a a story that is like, or like a design aesthetic um, from the artist Gris Grimley, who kind of took the, the original Adventures of Pinocchio novel from 1883 by Carlo Collodi. We've talked before when we did our extra milestone about Pinocchio, the 1941 Disney version, or 1940, I should say. As well as, uh, the Robert Zemeckis version that came out, uh, in September, if people remember that. Right. And so this design, like this sort of take on Pinocchio is a little bit more recent. Chris Grimley's design was in uh, the early 2000s when that came out. And Del Toro clearly, you know, that struck a a chord with him. And he thought, you know what, It, it would be interesting to apply that look and aesthetic of Pinocchio. It's a little bit more off kilter. It's a little bit sloppier, but it's also sort of like elegant in its imperfection and applied that to a stop motion animated musical. And that's what this really is. I, I saw some people when this movie was first starting to roll out, they didn't even realize that this was a musical. It has song numbers. Uh, Alexander Desplat does the the score here. And it's also a very, very different take on Pinocchio. A lot of us know the original story because of the Disney movie being so popular. And we grew up with other things like there was the live action remake of Pinocchio in the early 2000s. There were shows, there were plays i mean there's so many so many takes on pinocchio over the years obviously shrek uh you know that's a, a big one for a lot of people right i guess yeah sure <laughs> uh yeah yeah i mean he's definitely in there <laughs> it's in the mix but uh this is this is a very very different take you, you haven't seen pinocchio like this i don't think and uh reason being del toro you know he kind of he kind of took the the core tenets of the story and remixed it, put it in a different time period. This takes place in 1930s Italy. So he ties the story of Pinocchio as a puppet trying to you know, become a real boy, to earn Geppetto's love and all that, and to be good uh, during the rise of Italian fascism and the prelude to World War II. It's, it's an interesting well- dynamic. I mean, I mean, you're kind of glossing over the most kind of inventive thing about this is that like he doesn't really, for most of the movie, want to be a real boy. Like he's kind of infatuated with the idea that he is immortal and that he can like not die. Right. That's part of the story is that he doesn't understand, you know, why he should be real. That that is a very subversive thing about the story because to him it's like, well, I'm immortal. (laughs) I'm like, why would I want to age? But the that is a running theme throughout the movie, right? The whole movie of like the the sanctity of death and re- rejecting death and, you know, Geppetto uh, loses his son in this. And then, so that, that's sort of the explanation for why he creates Pinocchio in the first place. I think Del Toro clearly, uh, he and Zemeckis must've been in the same room. They just went in completely different directions, I think. 
Yeah. Um, well, that is something I was going to ask you about, uh, not related to that movie necessarily, but just uh, um, why do you think so many directors feel so infatuated with the story and like feel the need to tell their version of it, even if it doesn't really differentiate much? from the material like it just seems like this is something that's gone on like multiple like you said there's a huge history of films taking the story or adapting in different ways i mean another example i don't think you mentioned is a uh, steven spielberg's ai which is a passion project of stanley kubrick's like he just kind of made that movie in honor of his late friend and like there's several other adaptations i mean there were like like three pinocchio movies at least that came out this year i just was curious uh to hear why you think personally that that would be the case well, I know Disney, Walt Disney, he wanted to do it because, and, and obviously there had already been Pinocchio movies before the animated Disney version, but I think Walt wanted to do it because it was such a popular story and the fantasy of it just lended itself really well to the big screen. He was always just like sort of hunting those kinds of budding intellectual properties that he could adapt, right? And I think it was as basic as that. It was just like, this is a very popular fairy tale novel and it's dark too, and it's good for kids, has lessons for kids. I mean, it just has like the fundamentals of a good story there. But I think like over the years, it's just resonated because the Disney version was so influential. And also because there is a, a bit of a pang of like existential dread <laughs> that you're sort of uh, relaying there, particularly with Spielberg, because the whole idea of a, a child wanting to be real and that butting against like technology and, and inanimate objects, it, it's, it's very much a thing that... When uh, an older director, I think, is looking at entertainment he can create for the next generation, this does seem like a story that lends itself kind of well to that. And then there's also just the shameless sort of, you know, Pinocchio, a true story, right? Where it's like, oh, people know what Pinocchio is. They'll buy this. You know what I mean? It's it, There is a little bit of a cynicism there, too. Yeah, I mean, I'm obviously not referring necessarily uh, just to like those like kind of cash ins that are talking like the Pinocchio, true story thing. But yeah, just I mean, like. I don't know. Like, another example that just came to mind was like uh, Alita Bow Angel, which is like, you know, not a direct adaptation of Pinocchio, but clearly, you know, borrowing heavily from that material. Yeah. And that's James Cameron. And, I think that's and Robert, slightly Robert, more of a uh, stretch because Alita has a lot of influences outside of that. I think that's a that's a very different. Well, I'm not saying it's exclusively that, but I mean, I think it's caked in there. I mean, the basic idea of like a, a robot wanting to be real. I don't know. I I think that that I mean, is something that has existed outside of Pinocchio, right? Sure. I guess so. I don't know. I just, I don't know. It's just something I find kind of fascinating. It's something I, I've given extra thought to given how many Pinocchio movies are coming out this year. It's just that, I don't know. It seems to be a little bit deeper than, than that, but I, I don't exactly know why it is that filmmakers feel so infatuated with it. I don't know if it's something to do with the idea of like, like you said, balancing mortality with this sort of, uh, you know, fantastical element that just lends itself really well to film. And that's kind of like maybe even a metaphor for film in some ways, like kind of having that vulnerability or desire for vulnerability in a medium that is sort of eternal. And I don't know, I just, I don't, I'm not quite sure what it's, that is. It's an easy story to adapt because it has a baked in conflict that meshes well with what the character wants and it makes the character an underdog. It speaks to, I think, like, People who watch these movies wanting, you know, to feel like there is like a, a reason for everything, especially if, you know, if you have this sort of underdog story and the whole point is for you to feel like you've earned your place in society. It It, it is pretty like basic to what I think people go through. Right. The, you know, imposter syndrome, stuff like that. So, yeah, I just I just think it's an appealing project to try to adapt and that, sure. you know, you can see it here. I mean, it, I think that Del Toro obviously isn't complacent 
with the Pinocchio story. He he certainly right. doesn't just want to. He, he, I like that he he looked at the original story. He looked at the original dark fairy tale and weird stuff happens in that, right? Sure. And he was like, well, I'm going to really do something different with this, like really remix it. And people forget, too, that the Disney version remixes a lot of it. it it's very, very yeah. different from what Collodi had in mind. And I like that Del Toro is having that same approach with this. And I think that's why for a lot of people, I think in my Letterboxd review, I said this is going to be like the the Pinocchio movie that the weird kid in your class likes. And you're not going to really appreciate and uh, understand that kid's uh, preference until you're a little bit older, maybe. Uh, but here, here's my first question, because okay, now th- this is a movie that, you know, as we talk about it, I can imagine people are listening and like, this sounds pretty adult. Is this for kids or is it, who, who is this for? And we've already touched on that a little bit, right? I personally think this is for young adults, young adults and old adults. I, I don't think this movie is really geared toward children. Children can watch it and enjoy it and all of that. But I do think that this is not, I, I think Del Toro clearly to me wants this to be watched and appreciated mostly by teenagers and people in their early twenties. And, you know, for the most part. But do you agree with that? Disagree with that? I mean, what direction do you go in? I mean, like you said, I, th- I think it's still a family film. And I don't know. I, I tend to respect filmmakers who aren't afraid to shy away from having kind of darker, more, uh, you know, supernatural elements like this, like things that, you know, I, I think there's this temptation to kind of coddle kids with, you know, things that, you know, I, I, I respect like in the 80s and 90s, there was more of an effort to kind of have movies that like, like, I don't know, is Beetlejuice like a, a movie for kids? Maybe not exactly, but something a kid can enjoy. And I guess I kind of look at this film in a similar way, but it's easy because this is a PG film. And, you know, it is, you know, for uh, I think it's intended with kids in mind. But I also agree with you that, like, it's a very dark film and it has a lot more uh you know like the fascism and you know war and immortality and like you know the Mussolini are these things that you know will probably spark uh maybe a um a difficult conversation after the film if you have very young children but I wouldn't shy away from like a like six to eight year old watching this film necessarily I do like the idea though of like kids growing up with this and realizing like Benito Mussolini killed all of these people and he's voiced by the same guy who voices SpongeBob, you know, just having that sort of moment, right. Where you grow up. That's uh that's what I look forward to. Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, Tom Kenny. Maybe. Yeah. Talented voice actor. Uh, of course. Of course. And uh, Tom Kenny is also in Pinocchio, a true story as Geppetto. Now, we, we we don't have to talk too much about the other Pinocchio movies. Sorry, Tom Hanks. But we do have a, an incredible voice cast for this. I mean, we have Ewan McGregor, who plays not Jiminy Cricket, but Sebastian J. Cricket. And uh, he, he that character has yeah. one of my favorite ways into the story. The idea that he was in the tree that gets cut down and all this stuff when Pinocchio comes to life. Mm-hmm. I mean, I thought that that was just th- that's what Del Toro does best, right? He finds yes. ways to take this the bare bones of like these disparate pieces of the the original source material and just be imaginative with it like imaginative in a way that i just don't think a lot of filmmakers are really like going full force in they're kind of putting their attention in other things but i like how del toro always puts a lot of emphasis on the world building he really thinks of like backgrounds and settings and and aesthetics in a way that all tie together thematically whereas i think that a lot of directors are great 
and not to put anybody down. I just think that sometimes directors only really are like, well, who's the character? What is their motivation? What are they thinking? And they go all in on that, which is great. But they just don't give that extra care and attention to the production design, Mm -hmm. the the world of it all. And that, that to me is what makes this movie stand out a lot, even from other animated movies that came out this year, at least in my opinion. But sorry, I was going, that's my tangent off of Ewan McGregor. (laughs) I was going to also mention David Bradley voices Geppetto, Gregory Mann voices Pinocchio, and Carlo, the deceased son. Uh, Ron Perlman voices Podesta, uh, like a fascist government officer. Finn Wolfhard, John Turturro, uh, Kate Blanchett voices a monkey, uh, Tim Blake Nelson, Christoph Waltz, Tilda Swinton. I mean, it's a feast, right? And we we ate good, you know, in... uh, in a proverbial theater this past month. Yeah. But no, I mean, to tie back to what you're saying, I mean, I think one thing I find uh, very uh, beautiful and uh, meaningful with Guillermo del Toro's films is that he's able to blend the fantastical with the allegorical in a way where each are able to, you know, flourish and vibrate without like one kind of serving as, uh, um, you know, like uh, one being overshadowing the other, I guess. But I mean, I do understand that. Like, I think some people, for as, as emotional as I think Guillermo del Toro is about his films, like I can understand that. I guess some people feel a little cold about his films. Like, I think they they tend to appreciate the aesthetics, but don't get as much out of them story wise. I've, I've never, never really understood had that. that personally. Yeah, I never really got that myself. But I can understand. I I will say, I mean. This is probably not only in terms of uh, tone, but I think in terms of emotionality, probably his closest to Pan's Labyrinth, which I mean, I think tends to be widely considered, you know, if not his best and certainly in his top three. And I think that's the reason why, you know, not to jump ahead. I think this is probably one of his best films ever made or one of the best films he's ever made. And and I got to be honest, I don't know if we've talked about this too much, but. I've always liked Pan's Labyrinth, but if there is a Del Toro film that people really love that has left me somewhat cold, at least in the sense where I watched it and I just didn't get a wash in the emotion of it, I think at the same level as everyone else, it would be Pan's Labyrinth. I don't know why. Uh, It's just a movie that just doesn't hit me as hard. It's a movie where I think the reason I like it as much as I do is because of the soundtrack and the score and I love the creature designs. But yeah, it's just not a story that's ever really hit me. But uh, what do you think of his his insistence that, you know, till to, to Del Toro, this is part of that trilogy of films for him where he's kind of guiding along in movies like Pan's Labyrinth, right? Where they're essentially movies set with the backdrop of war, right? Yeah. Um, you're talking about Devil's Backbone too? Yes. So okay. Devil's Backbone, Pan's Labyrinth, and this movie, Pinocchio, he considers them part of like an unofficial trilogy. Do you, do you think there's any uh, justification for that yourself? Well, Sure. I mean, you're looking at, you know, war through the eyes of a child mm-hmm. and you're seeing things like a new, but you're, you're also are recognizing the terror and the horror of these things. Like he doesn't downplay those elements, but through this kind of fantastical, wondrous lens, he's able to find beauty in the terror and how, you know, him, humanity and the, the supernatural elements can kind of blend together to find, you know, very meaningful, uh, harmonious things, even in like, times of unspeakable terror fair enough fair enough and i I think that it is an inspired touch to take this movie and to put it in 1930s italy especially because it is a movie in conversation with in that way the 1940 pinocchio because that was a movie that was set during the colodi time the late 19th century and it was a movie that was a little bit more spiritually upbeat about the world and Italy during that time, because obviously 
Disney made it uh, during World War II, right? And so it had to be, I mean, they made it, I think, um, during the rise of fascism, and then it came out at the height of World War II, or, you know, in the midst of World War II, I should say. That said, I think that, yeah, Pinocchio itself, like this version, I think is very interesting in how it analyzes, well, what if, you know, we did that, but we made it in thirties and forties. Right. And I, I like that little, that little twist on it because it, it feels a little bit more sort of like this movie is dessert. Like this movie is sort of earning its place. It, it has like a reason to, to exist. It's not just rehashing the same old thing. Now the story here, it, it is very different, but there, there is some stuff that they bring in, you know, there, there's sort of like a composite character for the, the carnival Barker and honest John and all of that stuff. There is still like the fantastical stuff. Like, you know, there's a, a whale, you know, there's a, a larger than life whale. There's still stuff like, uh, you know, animal creatures, anthropomorphic creatures here and there, although it isn't quite as, you know, over the top as some of the other Pinocchio tales. What, what do you think of this take on how the world sort of comes together? I mean, for me, it's all sold because the stop motion is just immaculate. And I think that it, it it's so human. Like it, when you watch the stop motion here, it doesn't feel like it's sort of like going over the top in any unnecessary ways. It feels just like, I don't know, there's something really subtle about it, something really poetic about it to me. Yeah. And I mean, I think... Pinocchio has just lent itself much more to animation than live action. Now, I did really enjoy, uh, to my surprise, the um, uh, 2000 or the 2020 one that Roberto Benigni was That's in. That's right. Um, uh, and I think that one's a pretty inspired take as well. I, I think that one, you know, if you thought this one was too intense for kids, uh, buckle up, bud. Because uh, that one gets way, way more intense, I think, uh, comparatively. But. Um, I will say that I think with stop motion, there is a sort of like inherent uh, just by nature of, you know, being stop motion animation. There is sort of like uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for exactly like it, it's there is a fluidity to it, but there is something that that is kind of more uh, stilted and a little bit more uh, able to lend itself to a story like this, where it's about a boy kind of finding his way and in a way that I think lends itself sort of to like uh, Guillermo del Toro's love of Gothic horror very naturally. But I feel like it's not as quite as uh, jarring, I guess, to hear the story or see the story again through that lens in a way that I'm actually kind of surprised. And I'm sure there probably have been other stop motion animated Pinocchio movies, but not to the scale and and by a filmmaker as prominent as Guillermo del Toro. But yeah, I think it just lends itself quite perfectly to this medium and to this filmmaker. And uh, I know this is a passion project of his. He's been trying to make it for, I think, well over 20 years at this point. And uh, I think you feel that love in every single composite and frame. Agreed. I mean, we didn't see del Toro for a while after Shape of Water. And then, you know, he came out with two bangers in a row. Uh, If you would if you would say, for me, again, not the biggest Nightmare Alley fan, but, you know, to each theirs. I like it. I mean, I'm not going to say it's, you know, top. It's like a solid B. And were you a Teen Crimson Peak? Uh, I enjoyed it. I mean, I didn't, I, I feel like I need to rewatch it. I feel like, I don't know, it was more of a kind of like gothic romance, but they were kind of selling more of the horror in the trailer. So I think I might have had maybe more of a, I think my expectations were a little skewed with that one in a way that I feel like I kind of need to give that film a second shot. Understandable. Um, the one that actually weirdly left me kind of cold of his, uh, is Pacific Rim. Which, uh, that's a tough one because obviously I disagree with my full heart. Yeah. Mm. Cause I thought, I think that that movie is brilliant, but okay. As far as Pinocchio goes, 
One thing that I think that we might have a little bit of contention on, and we've talked about it a little bit off the air, and we kind of saved it. You know, we saved the, not a, not the fight. I don't think we're going to fight about this, but I I really love the songs in this. I think that as a musical, it wins. I I think that like some of the songs here are just really well done. I love the song that Pinocchio sings. You know, Ciao Papa, and like I love the the song that you know Ewan McGregor's Sebastian Cricket is trying to sing throughout the movie. I think the music here is actually really good. I mean, it's just to me, it's like on par with the Disney version in terms of just it has like really great lyricism to it. I think that it's not just catchy, but it's melodic and it's there's something kind of haunting about it. But I get the sense that you weren't the, you weren't as big of a fan as I was. Of uh, the music, I I mean, I really love the score. To be clear, like I I take no fault with that, um, and I th- I think it lends itself very beautifully and romantically to the story. I think the songs themselves are fine. I just don't find them especially memorable. I guess like I just don't. If they were taken out of the film, I don't think it would have been like a huge loss. I don't. I, I think disagree. They, I, I think just, that they they make this movie like good to great for me. Hmm, interesting. Okay. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I, I do enjoy Chow Papa, and I, I mean, I, I also do, uh, uh, I, I think Ewan McGregor's voice performance in here is very lively and uh, uh, sweet, and I, I kind of uh, admire the gumption of his coming off of uh, <laughs> Beauty and the Beast, where he, you know, had a, uh, you know, maligned rendition of Be Our Guest, uh, and he's kind of just like, you know what, I have the song in my heart. I'm just gonna keep singing, buddy. If you can, if you can't handle it, the credits are rolling, buddy. You can leave. Yeah, yeah. You could shut the movie Moulin, off. Uh, since you know. Moulin Rouge, I mean, McGregor just can't seem to catch a break, right? With his uh, with his singing voice being the way it is. I guess so. I I, I love Ian McGregor's singing voice. But no, I mean, I I thought like that song at the end during the credits that he sings was very endearing, and I, I that was probably my favorite little musical interlude as far as the songs themselves, but. I don't know. I mean, yeah, I guess I guess, uh, you know, I thought the the one that he sings during the, the show with Mussolini was fun and stuff like I I don't dislike the songs necessarily. I just don't find myself uh, feeling like they uh, impact the film as much as you do, I guess. Fair enough. Uh, yeah, I think that uh, for me, they add even more of like a, a fantasy quality to the movie that to me, like I really like stop motion animation, but sometimes I, I like it more in small doses. I get a little bit. I don't know, exhausted almost by the sort of uh, crafted nature of it all. And I think as when these movies are more like musicals, it just hits me the right way. That's why like Nightmare Before Christmas is a good example. There's something about adding like music and that sort of otherworldly quality of a musical to this kind of animation that I just really hits me right. And so when the a movie's able to have it and the songs are good too, that I'm I'm an easy mark. Well, I mean, to your credit. I will say, I mean, I've said this plenty of times before, but I think musicals are some of the most pure forms of this art and yeah. that like, you know, you can kind of like do away with the realism and, and invite a fin- uh, an emotionality and a fantastical element that 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 really lets the medium sing. And I also think that stop motion animation is some of the, the best uh showcases of this medium because with every anytime you watch the motion film even if it's a mediocre one uh which i i don't think are necessarily always the case but um you can just tell the craft and love that goes into it not that other animation forms you can't tell it obviously like you know hand-drawn animation even some cg and anime or whatever you can tell that a lot of people put you know all this pain 
time and, and effort into making it. But I just feel like when you watch a sub motion animated film, you just you can just see the craft coming alive in a way that it's just it's very literal, but it's also very emotional. And it just feels so fully formed. Uh, and it just it just showcases like what film is like, to me. It's just like you're just watching, you know, these still images come to life uh, in a very literal way. And it just becomes uh, a very involving experience for me. So that's why I always tend to seek these type of films out. And I think this is such a great showcase because it it, it also, you know, becomes uh, twofold because, you know, it's about a boy coming to life and kind of reckoning with what life is. And then you have like a form like this where it's like, you know, mouths of clay are coming to life and, and making this beautiful mu- emotional thing here. Yeah, I think this movie is terrific. I, you know, I recently put together my top of the year for Critics' Choice, and this is in my top 10. Um, you know, and I might move things around. It could be in my top five by the time we get to our end of year discussions. But yeah, I think this this movie, to, to what you're saying, I, I couldn't have said it better, you know? And, and I think that, uh, look, I still need to finish Mad God. I'm curious where that stands for you at this current moment, um, the shutter. Uh, big fan of that one. Yeah. I, I, Certainly a different film, but definitely a, a labor of love in many, many respects. Sure. I, I, yeah, I just I get the sense. It's like, I wonder which of these two, you know, are sort of on the Will Ashton programs, a film festival front. Um. Sure. I mean, I will say, I, and you gave me some flack for this last year, but I mean, I thought there were some good animated films last year, but I felt overall it was kind of an underwhelming year for animation. And obviously I like Luca. I thought Mitchell's versus machines was a fine film. I'm not trying to dissuade any, you know, they're, they're good for what they are. Also, obviously flea, I thought was quite good. Crypto zoo. Um, yeah. Crypto zoo as well. Um, but I just feel like this year it's kind of, uh, it's been an improvement for me. I think you got turning red, you got mad God and you got Pinocchio, which I think is my animated film of the year so far, at least. I mean, I still need to, I think see one or two other ones, but uh, you know, like Puss in Boots. <laughs> I guess. Well, I mean, that's the thing too. Um, is I, I think, yeah, there there are just some really good animated films this year. There, you know, I thought the Bad Guys was pretty decent, and you know, I I sure. thought that uh, you know, Puss in Boots: Last Wish, it's better than it should be. <laughs> I think some people okay. are really like in love with that movie, and you know, power to them. But I, I mean, like, look, like obviously because of the podcast, the Ogre Totes Ogre, I'm like excited for the film, but I'm seeing some reviews where people are having like ex- existential crises. I'm like. Calm down. Yeah, it's like their first like time. It's Puss in Boots too. <laughs> watching a movie <laughs> that does this sort of thing. I don't know. Um, yeah. Um, no judgment. Yeah. I know. I mean, it's not like. I mean, if you get that much out of it, maybe I will. I have no idea. I haven't seen the film. Uh, but yeah, I just I see some of these reviews and it's just like you know I had to like recontextualize my life. Is like I just I saw some people you know, saying like Puss in Boots. It's like the best animated movie of the year. I'm like, what? <laughs> it is not right it's good it's 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 fun it's it, but sure. like over this like i haven't right. even finished mad god and i would put mad god over that uh easily sure. but uh i mean yeah yeah i would say i mean the only animation film that i can think of that was like a true disappointment was probably lightyear lightyear but and strange world like, are the two for me i think like the two okay, i still need to see uh strange world. see those were the two disney movies where they really like i just think that they really just didn't seem to put a lot of work and effort into the stories and, and into like what the worlds are like i mean you look at lightyear what a boring planet he's on it's like you hold that movie yeah. up against like this and like i want to live in this pinocchio world i don't want to spend 10 minutes in the world of lightyear strange world to its credit has a much more interesting location that movie just kind of falls apart because the story is so basic like there's nothing offensive about it it's just completely vanilla honestly as a story and pinocchio it's like i watch this movie i feel challenged i feel like 
I feel like I'm, I'm, I feel like a kid, but in a different way. I don't feel like a kid just being condescended to and patronized. I feel like when I was a kid learning the world for the first time and the things feeling wondrous and like, that's what a kid's movie should do if you're an adult watching yeah. it, right? You shouldn't just watch these things and just sort of like turn your brain off because mm -hmm. like you can do that while watching Fancy Nancy with your kids or something. I don't know. I know the What's parents like Bluey or something. I don't know. What's Fancy Nancy? Fancy Nancy's like a kids TV show. That's right. You don't have nieces uh, and nephews, so. Yeah. I is it like um what's that thing on Netflix that's like always in the top 10 uh begins with a C? Uh Sham uh, Shampoo? Camelillion? No. <laughs> Camelillion or something uh, like I don't know. I don't know. It's it's like some kid show. Uh but yeah, I mean, I don't know. To your point about this film, I feel like to me, what makes it so lasting in a kind of broad uh, sense is that like so many Pinocchio movies have been about the morality of the character in the sense of like he needs to learn what it is to be in order to be human. He has to learn what it means to be a good kid. Like, don't lie. You know, don't steal. Don't disobey your elders. Don't, you know, you know, it's a you know, it's a fable about learning to be a good person. And like in order to be alive, you have to do right by people and all that stuff and school. not be selfish. Go to school, all that stuff. Uh, brush your teeth, drink your milk, all that. Don't jazz. be an actor. Um, <laughs> sure. Um, but this is, I mean, it's a lot more complex than that. It's like asking like, what does it mean to be alive? And like, what does it mean to be human and, and to have that sense of like connection to people and stuff like that. And to me, that's such a simple change, but so much more meaningful to me when you see a story like this. And that's not to say that the other Pinocchio movies, uh, you know, even the original Disney one don't have merit. Obviously I think that, Disney one's a, a great movie, and we've talked about that a lot in our extra milestone. But I just feel like this one just recontextualizes it in such a, a profound way that I don't know. It just it, it's really stuck with me in, in a way that even I wasn't really expecting coming out of the film. Yeah, at, uh, at in between drafts, we had uh, Pedro Gradrol actually review this, and he said something that I think was so astute about how it's it's so interesting watching a movie where Pinocchio is like this wooden puppet with no strings you know, trying to figure out what it means to be real in the backdrop of like a fashion, like in a country that is puppet like, you know, and bending over to like fascism. Like there's just something like you can watch it. And it's just such an interesting contrast between like, who's the real puppet, right? right? You know, everyone just sort of right. like falling in line with this like militaristic uprising yeah. that certainly has echoes, you know, to the modern day. Yeah. And I mean, the fact that he's willing to do that with uh, with uh, religion and Catholicism yeah. is, to me, it, I thought that was like amazing. Just like the idea of just like you know, kind of following. Like I like how, Je I like how uh, Jesus Christ is the crucifix is a character. Yes, but also the idea that there's a scene here where Pinocchio has to look up at the image of Christ and realize that he's not made in his. Yeah, image, why do they love that? Still tries to emulate. Yeah, <laughs> no, but he, no, like we we joke a little bit, but like yeah, when he looks up at the crucifix and it's just like, why do people love him and not me? And I'm just like. God, like Del Toro, what are you up to? Right, I think that's amazing. Like, yeah. I think that's incredible. Like, I don't, it's, it's like stuff like, why aren't other Pinocchio movies doing this? <laughs> Can you imagine <laughs> the live action Disney Pinocchio and like Tom Hanks looking at him and just being like, Pinocchio? I mean, you are an what abomination other metaphor? of Christ. <laughs> <laughs> but 
Pinocchio, you do not the body, the image of the Christ. Um, yeah, no, but like, you know, what more metaphor do you need than there's a scene in this one? Yeah, like where he's like looking up to a crucifix and trying to mirror, but never emulating that. And then there's, there's a scene in the Zemeckis film where Pinocchio takes a minute to look at big pile of shit and smell it. <laughs> She's like, honest John, why aren't you honest John the Baptist? Nothing like that. Right. Yeah, no. But I don't I mean, it's just like, I don't know. I don't know how that's going to resonate with other people. Like you said, I mean, like maybe that limits the audience. I don't know. But I mean, if we're going to get 5 billion Pinocchio movies, I want one that asks questions like that. And that's that. the thing. It's on amazing. Netflix, right? There's a, there's an accessibility to it for kids that I think that, yeah, parents are going to, you know, uh, you know, maybe not even realize that stuff's in there and just be like, oh, you know, let's watch Pinocchio. It's uh, a stop motion anime. Let's do it. They're in for it. But OK, I guess that's a good note to play the Rotten Tomatoes game. I'm curious how you're going to do on this week's round. Now we didn't have you last week for violent night. Will, and uh, obviously that was pretty sad. I, I, you know, I wish, yeah. I, I um, hope you get to see it at some point. Yeah. I had the novel coronavirus. So I yeah. can see the film now, but I'm better now. You're better now. And I just want you to know, Matt Donato did a really good job playing the rotten tomatoes game. I'd say he, he uh, had a, a pretty good sweep. Nice. I'm excited to hear. I, like I said, I still need to see the film, but I'm really excited to listen to the episode. I'm planning to listen to the menu episode two today since i just saw that film that's right yeah talk about that one with emma sasek and you just watched the menu and i think that uh yeah mm-hmm. once you get to bones and all i mean we we have a lot of stuff to get to this month i hope we're able to squeeze yeah. in everything we want to talk about between that and after sun and everything else mm-hmm. so babylon well let's uh oh yeah we'll get to babylon you you don't gotta worry about that now mm-hmm. uh guillermo del toro's pinocchio on ron tomatoes we have 197 reviews counted will what is your best guess uh 94 percent is not 94%. It's higher. Now, okay. I won't say how much higher. I want to see if you get it. I'll give you a second shot. It is higher. It's between 94 and 100. What do you think? Uh, 97%. There you go. I thought if I gave you one more, you'd be like, all right. You know, um, 97%, pretty high. It was 98 for a while, and then it dropped because, you know, you had a couple of haters join in the chat, but that's fine. They can hang out for a little bit if they want. Uh, we have 50 plus verified ratings. Uh, audience score what do you think this one's a trickier one um i'm gonna say 88 percent. that's pretty close too again off by three it's 85 um oh okay yeah a little lower. bit lower a little bit lower but not that yeah. not not crazy low um now we don't have a cinema oh. score but uh yeah go ahead uh forgot to mention the is, is his name david bradley the voice yeah. of pinocchio in this film uh, not uh, Pinocchio. Gregory Mann is the voice of Pinocchio. Uh, David Bradley voices Geppetto. Okay. Well, both of them I thought were tremendous. And I think Agreed. their voice performances, uh, we didn't highlight them enough. I think they uh, did great work. Fair fair play. Um, oh, but okay. Letterboxed. And also, we didn't say that the movie's not that long. You know, hour 54. And uh, it, it had a, you know, small budget, all things considered. A movie this beautiful was made for $35 million. Yeah, and, and we um, don't have like a box office, but you know, I'm sure it'll be fine because uh, it's much lower know- budget than a lot of the Netflix stuff. Yeah, did you notice they kind of uh, highlighted the animators more than like other anime films would? I think that was a pointed thing that Guillermo del Toro did. Yeah, he, like I think they'll- he put the animators up like as if they were like you know like up there with the editors and uh, you know like the high level people just to kind of highlight that like they're the pe- they're the reason why this movie exists yeah. and I think that's really uh, exceptional thing to do. It is funny though that at the same time it is marketed as Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. <laughs> Although to be fair a lot of that has to do with like look 
there are so many Pinocchio movies. We have to find a way to sort of anchor this. So I'm, I'm no yeah. hate for me. And uh, yeah, I mean, it, that is a good point, though, as far as like he's not the only director on the film. You know, yeah, we mentioned also, Mark Mustafson uh, and then Patrick McHale yeah. did the screenplay. Yeah, it was not a one man show. Right. As uh, yeah. again, that was something else uh, from Pedro's review on In Between Drafts. You want to check that out. But yeah, so uh, on letterboxd.com, we have 70,000 watches, which is pretty good. It had a good, apparently a lot of that was over the weekend. Now that it's on Netflix, a lot of people in the Letterboxd community are checking it out who didn't see it in theaters. So, uh, you know, that's a pretty decent number. Now, what do you think the average rating is, Will? What do you think? Uh, 4.2? So close. Hmm. You're off by 0.1. What do you think? Is it 4.1 or 4.3? What does your heart tell you? I'm going to say 4. 4.3 because i think people who are seeking this out are mm. going to the theater to see it and i think they're you have too much trust uh, and hope in humanity uh, though. it's 4.1 uh, that's still really high though i mean most of this stuff is usually in the threes and anything above four tends to be like this could this could enter the top 250 at some point possibly i don't know if it, it will but you know anything's possible sure anything is possible a boy could come to life <laughs> a wooden boy that's right. So, um, all right. Well, that is made of uh, pine. <laughs> I don't know where I'm going with this. I, I don't want to cut you a off. Chris Pine joke in. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. I forgot about that. <laughs> Would have been funny if they both had a Chris Pine joke right. just randomly. Put I was in waiting there. for it. I was like, please do it. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Great movie. I think we, yeah, we're both fans. Uh, very, very possibly, I think, could be one of our consensus picks of the year. Because uh, I don't think there are a ton of movies that we both like have in our top tens i'm not i don't think there's going to be a ton of overlap we'll see but i don't know there's uh, a couple movies I mean, right? there like rrr i think three, we both liked but three or four maybe maybe five okay but yeah yeah i just i forget sometimes where you stand like relative to everything else when it comes to movies like everything everywhere all at once tar stuff like that i don't know if it's one of those things where like i might have on my list you might have them like a little bit lower i don't know i don't know i mean i was thinking about this and i think i talked about it with you a little bit i i feel like this this year's lists are more kind of cyclical. Like, I feel like there's, there's like the same kind of like 25, 30 movies I keep seeing go around. I feel like there was more variety with years past in their list. And I don't know what that's about. I think we just had a more robust award season than we usually do. I think like 2020, our award season was pretty weak. And then last year I think was not the best. So uh, I think a lot of us were picking stuff from all over the year. That was really good. Last year. I thought like I, because I, I did more festivals, most of my favorite movies were festival movies. And so, you know, this year, I think that there's just like a little bit more balance, um, at least for me personally. But I think we're going to have some arguments about that uh, in a future episode of Cinema Hollow. Since we start talking about the year in, in total, because I think it was a better year, but I don't think you do. So, uh, No, I, I think last year, I was looking actually earlier today, I was looking at last year's list or my list from last year. And I was just like, dang. That was a good year for movies. I think it was a good oh, year, like but I think a... I just personally think this year is better now that I've gone through it. But mm. we'll. S- I don't know. We'll I mean, I I haven't made my list yet, so I can't. Uh, maybe I'll uh, mince my words when I actually make my list. Or I might, you know, once you once you set me straight on some of those movies, I you're like, you think you you think this was good? This movie? I don't even know what I'm thinking of in this respect. But uh, but anyway, we'll be back next week. What are we talking about next week? Avatar: The Way of Water. Is that what's happening? Oh, yeah, we're talking Abaddon. That's right. And we'll, we'll, we're hoping to do a couple of one-offs. You know, uh, we want to get to Babylon, of course. Uh, we want to get to yeah. After Sun. Um, sure. You know, what What else? Like, besides those two. I mean, there's a uh, bunch, right? We have women talking. I know we want to get to. Um, sure. The Whale. Um, yeah. Puss in Boots. Well, I mean, there are too many movies to count. 
I mean, I don't think you want to get to the whale. I want to get to the whale. I want to talk, talk to you about, about the whale movie. because uh, I have a bone to pick about that movie. But uh, speaking of bone, mm. uh, bones and all, yeah. um, there you go. White noise. I mean, December sure. is going to be a packed month for the Cinemaholics. Don't you worry. Yeah, we got some content coming up. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, and put some boots too. I said that one. Oh, sorry. I wanted to emphasize it. Oh, it's I see. <laughs> and don't forget, like Avatar. I want to dance with somebody. The Whitney Houston story. Whitney Houston. Well, now, I want to dance. Uh, what, what does it? I was say, yeah. They, well, I guess they changed the title, maybe, <laughs> to, or, like or at least it's what the. So, well, I don't know. I think I can't tell if they actually changed the title or if it's like, uh, like remember when Birds of Prey came out yeah, and like yeah. the week after they were like Harley Quinn colon Birds of Prey for like the you know like Fandango and, and social media and stuff. Yeah. I don't know if they're just trying to do that because they're just like we really need to make sure people know this is about Whitney Houston as if I want to dance with somebody isn't enough of a tell, but whatever. I just I have to imagine this movie is terrible because it is we are well, in mid December and no critics have seen it. Like, I mean, I know one critic who saw it. Uh, well, that's the thing. Like the critics circles haven't seen it. They did not send us anything for it. Like there no sort of like for your consideration stuff at all for this movie. It's two and a half hours long and mm-hmm. it's the Anthony McCartan is the producer and people don't like him yeah. for reasons we don't have to get into. I mean, I'm just like, sure. what is this movie? Like how bad is this? Uh, I mean, I do. I think it's going to be good. Not necessarily. I think it's going to be a hit. I mean, I'll be surprised if it's not. Yes, it seems like people are really responding to that trailer. But, you know, I don't know. I could be wrong. I mean, it could just be another flop from this year. I don't know. I don't know. I, I it, it certainly is the kind of movie that should be like this year's respect. Right. Like, I mean, it's Whitney Houston. I mean, one of the most iconic, you know, musical, I, act, you know, yeah. performers of our time. I mean, come on. I do think I, I'm not sure who the actress is who plays Whitney Houston, but I'm sure she's good. Naomi Aki. Yeah, that's. Her. We'll see. We'll we'll see how this movie does. Uh, you know, and in, in terms of uh, her take on Whitney, I just I I just wonder if there's something about the movie that they know is going to rub people the wrong way. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. All right. Well, I do not know. I know that pretty soon <laughs> we're going to be taking a trip to Pandora. Yes. Right? Well, you've been. You've you've gone back. I, I I just came back from my trip, my vacation there. Yeah, um, you got uh, your suitcases in hand, and you're you know ready to share the splendors that you've seen. <laughs> <laughs> I I genuinely, and you're gonna see it like uh, like in like the 3D, like all that stuff. Uh, yeah, they say my screening is in 3D Dolby. Well, there you go. What are you typing up? I was trying to find, I want to dance with somebody on Letterboxd to see if like any critics are have like logged it and I can't find it. I'm like well, typing uh, in all variations of this and Owen uh, Galepti. Oh, there it is. From Vri- it's because it's Wana, oh, from- W-A-N-N-A, and I was putting I want yeah. to. My bad. Ah, there you go. Um, I see. You would think they would still make that the search option like you know for google yeah th- i see three three critics have watched it and they haven't said what they think mm. yet um i see one here but, uh, them putting from the writer bohemian rhapsody in the trailer as if that's some sort of flex <laughs> uh but okay whatever um well like, no like i said the owen oh, what's his face from variety is uh quite favorable on he put it in his best of the year list so that's that's, that's surprising fun. to hear. Uh, yeah, I see a three star from one person. So, uh, okay, okay, all right. Well, the stars well, of Cinemaholics will be there. 
pretty soon. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. Is this all going in the episode, or are we just kind of dilly-dallying at this point? <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. All right. From the Internet California, I'm John and Gurney. And from the Internet Pennsylvania, I'm Wes. I want a podcast with somebody. <laughs> there you go.